Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Ponytails Podcast. My name is Andres Gamboa, and I am your host. The Ponytails Podcast interviews people who sold books door-to-door for a company called Southwestern Advantage, and it's been around since 1868. Uh, I, myself, and all our guests have done this program. Sometimes we do it for multiple summers, and it was all during our college years. And naturally, from doing this job, some amazing stories, and more importantly, some amazing people come out of the program. So uh, my job is just to go find them and talk to all of them. Our vision here at the show is to create the largest alumni network that exists for this because there's about a hundred estimated about a hundred thousand people around the world who have done this program and our job is to go find them, connect them, and help build a community of those folks to just help change the world. So hopefully you guys enjoy the show. Make sure you guys subscribe, like, follow all the things. We're on all the platforms and social media pretty much except for like TikTok. So come find us. Come say hello. Uh, if you want to be on the show, give us a holler on any of those platforms and more importantly, just make sure that uh, you find another book person and share it with them. We'd love all that support. Uh, my guest today is Jim Mariani. Uh, he sold for five summers, and he is currently living in San Diego, California, was part of the education division. Uh, he went to school in Loyola in Chicago and in Rome, uh, originally from Peoria, Illinois. Um, he His favorite scroll from Ogmandino is number nine, I Will Act Now. Um, which I mean, honestly, we haven't had that one in a long time. So I'm glad someone brought that back. That's exciting. Um, he is currently, uh, doing living trust services and he, he does it to the DIY market. I'm excited to find out what that's more like because he also, uh, turned his business over and is turning his business over to his son who did knock on door, not knock on door. So just curious to see how all of that went and how, uh, being in business with his son, uh, in, in what he's taught him and passed on from his experience with Southwestern is like. If you guys want to get a hold of him, he is on social media. Just find at 309, uh, the number's 309. And then Jimmy, if you want to go find his socials and connect with him uh, from uh, your time selling books. So when we come back, quick word from some of our friends here at the show. Here's some career opportunities for you guys looking. These are all alumni companies. So if you guys want to learn more about them, click on the links below. Uh, it'll be a quick about minute, and then we'll be right back on with our man jim hey guys pedro vega with cardinal senior benefits so one of the most important things in sales is being convicted in what you're selling and how you can help people so being a broker we talked about that in another ad you know you have a lot of tools on your belt another thing is something called cash value when i sit down with someone and they have coverage i can usually get a better deal because i'm a broker but sometimes they have money in their previous policy that if i can get them approved i can literally get them an extra thousand fifteen hundred eighteen hundred dollars back in the mail on top of us helping their family with a better value so it's kind of a win 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 and it makes your life a lot easier hope you guys enjoy the rest of the show thank you very much hey jim Hey, Andres. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks. Thanks for being out here. Was it Cassandra that referred you? Yeah. Oh, so awesome. Cassandra's so cool, isn't she? Really? We were having, I was having a talk. Who was I talking to about Cassandra? And she's just such a, she's reliable. You know, she's just there for you. It's such a cool thing. She's actually, I don't know if you, she told you, she's helping us out with the Bizzler trip. It's like an alumni Sizzler reunion we're having. It's going to go well then. <laughs> yeah. And we, it did last year, so we're excited for her this year. So, but yeah, w- welcome to the show. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Um, I let's just dive right on in. One of the first things I like to ask is, what are you up to now? Kind of catch us up 
Uh, feel free to go into as much detail as you wish. Uh, what have you been up to since you sold books? And, and, and how did you end up here in, in the living uh, trust industry? Well, I am now a, a paralegal for the last 31 and a half years. I've been serving the DIY market for the living trusts where I go to folks and find out how they want to avoid probate. And California allows you under a license called the LDA license to uh, help folks. If you're even if you're not an attorney, but you're dealing with smart people who know they just want to avoid probate and just need someone to assemble the documents and make sure that they're they're good to avoid probate. That's what I've been doing now with over 10,000 families in the last 31 and a half years. And I've had about 2,500 of those families come back to me and uh, and have them transfer mom and dad's house and all their other assets over to the kids without probate court. So that's what I've been doing since February 14th of 92. Wow. That's wild. So, okay. I, I love episodes that have to do with, uh, with this kind of topic because these are things that people don't know. And these are things that people should know. And so just getting to pick your brain about some of this stuff. Do you mind if I ask you like some basic questions about what you do? Great. Okay, so probate, we're talking about the court as far as like what happens with your estate, right? This is exactly right. Okay. And to even like, there might be young, young people listening to this who don't even know what the heck that means because they're too young to even have thought about it, which is part of the problem is like, we're talking about you die, you own a house, you won't, you had money in the bank, you have a car, you have things that you own. What happens to all that stuff? Who gets to keep it? Is it your kids, your spouse, if they're still around and who gets to decide? And how do you, how do you, how can you uh, do something now while you're still alive to kind of make that process a lot smoother for your loved ones that you leave behind? Is that, am I describing that? About yeah. And about half the families in California never asked that question well enough to sidestep superior court, which is where the attorneys get involved in unraveling your estate and making sure it goes to the obvious people, which are the kids usually. And that ends up being anywhere between a 3% and a 10% cost of an estate. So all of that happens about half the time nicely and the other half the time not so nicely because people fail to think through how it's going to transfer. Okay, so let's, oh man, I'm so glad that we're talking to you. I used to be in insurance as well. So this is like a thing you would see because, you know, you talk about life, death. So I guess let me just go from the basics and say, what are the this is ballpark like what are the most common mistakes people make why is it because 50 percent is a su super high number and if that's california i'm sure the, the rest of this united states is about the same if not worse so what are some of the things that even people living now me myself i'm married what can right. i do to start working and doing this right what what are the you said they're not asking questions well enough like what should we be asking and what should we avoid well, they should avoid someone who tells them, you've got too little to worry about. You don't really need a trust. All you need is a will. And all a will is, is a love letter to superior court saying, please hire an attorney and get in front of a magistrate and spend 18 months going through 19 steps of court action before you get that house. And so all of that uh, in the form of a will, 
which you can do for free and which some lawyers have been taught just to do for free for their clients through a 30-year career generates all these probates when they get to be 55 years old and so these attorneys who have put all these wills out of the hands of folks end up having when they die the kids calling them and saying gee yours yours is the name on mom and dad's will and uh, we need help in getting the house what do we do and so uh, lots of large checks are written to unravel that 18-month program and that's what a will does but when you go by the way of a trust even if you just got no home but you got a wife and two little babies and you've gone out and you've bought a million dollars of term insurance for 30 years god forbid if you and your wife were to die and those kids were four or five years old that million dollars goes into probate and then is handed equally to the two kids on their 18th birthday and all that just in time to buy a brand new corvette stingray so the point is when you do a life insurance contract you've got to remember to put the contingent beneficiary for the trust so you can have your mom your dad you can have your brother your sister managing that fortune for your two children so that when they're 18 they don't get the darn money but rather they have to go to uncle mark or aunt Jeannie to get permission on on their inheritance even until they're 30 years old or whenever it's a good age to do it so that's the world of estate planning yeah that's that's phenomenal so avoid avoid just like the the not having to not having made completely solid like avoid um make sure you do cross the t's and dot the i's this is essentially what you're saying make sure you do your right. work on that now when you when you when you think about the things that like people should be doing right now so talk to someone like me i'm a 30 year old i own a home uh married no kids yet but let's just pretend i have kids uh you're welcome mom um let's just say you know i'm a, in my, what should i be doing right now like what what should i be seeking to do right now uh what's the next step for me uh and are you married Yep, married. Uh, let's just say I have a kid. Okay. If that's the case and you were speaking with me, I would just make double sure that you have a nice 10 or 15 or even 20 year level term million dollar life insurance policy from AAA or from any favorite insurance sure. carrier. We don't sure. sell it, but we just say go on the internet, look for an affordable million dollar policy, mm -hmm. make sure that your wife is the primary beneficiary of that and then make sure your trust is the secondary beneficiary of that policy. Then you're set because you're young, you have no worries now with health or weight or tobacco or whatever problems would diminish your capacity to be insured. You can lock in a 10, 15, 20, even 30 year policy. And then you've got yourself a trust to say, listen, if me and my wife both die and we've left our little Susan behind and she's only five years old, then her grandma is going to be the guardian and she'll be the one running the show and taking care of that money so that little susan can have it covering her for all her needs over her next 25 years beautiful so and that's the key word right there i mean i used to work at primerica and they do term life insurance they're all over san diego and that's, that's the first thing is yeah term go term if you're young like that great and then the trust part, though, I'd never heard of. That's a brilliant idea. So you put the trust as the second beneficiary. That makes sense. Wife and I died in a car accident, both dead, kids, that I see. And then the trust is different to 
to make sure I understood what you said earlier, a will is like a love letter, is what you said. So, th- so I guess is is a, is a trust more like what people traditionally think of as a will that is legally enforceable? Is that like right? Right. It, it trust is like a will that's legally enforceable, but it doesn't go through superior court. It's strictly a letter to say to the realtors, to the escrow, to the banks, to the brokerages, to the life insurance. <clears throat> you don't need a letter testamentary from court to know that as the grandma and the guardian of this little grandchild now, I am legally allowed to take control of this money. I don't have to have court looking over my shoulder and I'm going to be managing these funds for the benefit of my grandchildren for their for the next coming year. So a trust just removes it from court and allows all the 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 roadblocks, which are the banks and the escrows to say, we're good. I'm fully authorized now and I don't need superior court to grab hold of this money and distribute it out to the children appropriately. Or as 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 the owner of the trust intended. Right. That's amazing. Now, okay, so then a couple follow-up questions on this because I just this is fascinating. Okay. What if you're allowed to tell me, what's the most in your 31 years that you've seen someone lose because they didn't do this right? Well, I mean, it's people who had every intention of doing their trust, but then they went into a refi and took and the lender made them take it out of the darn trust and put it back into husband and wife joint tenancy. And then mom and dad died together in an accident. And of course, the home uh, went into probate. And so that that kind of thing is the worst thing that you see is where it goes into an 18 month thing. Some attorney gets as much as 10% by the time you're done with all the expenses on on out here in California, million dollar, $2 million homes. And then eventually that money is then freed up for the child to be vested in them when they're 18 and not at a better age, that's more appropriate. So worst case scenarios are that you just die. It's a mess. The kids are delayed from getting it and all the uh, loved ones and the rest of the family end up paying the bills to keep everything afloat for a year and a half before they get their mitts on that money. You're telling me 50% of people in California don't know that? Mm-mm. They know it, but they think that it's going to be an okay time to do it when I get old. But then people die of car accidents, right? get cancer. They don't think about this. Oh, okay. So on that note, on the opposite of that same note is what is the best, like what are the coolest examples of, wow, this person did this right and look how awesome this became. Well, we've had 2,500 chances to hear the daughters and the sons call us and say, yeah, way back long ago, you did um, that trust for mom and dad. And I'll tell you that binder that you put together is all that we needed for the insurance and for the brokerage and for the bank and the credit union and the house. And there's six of us and we all have it set up where you set it up where uh, two of the six wanted to buy the darn house and four of the six just wanted the cash. So the trust has set it up to be able to allow those two to buy out the other four without getting reassessed on their property taxes and uh, enjoy both Prop 13 and Prop 19, which now says, not only do you get to keep your taxes the same if you get it from mom and dad, but if you live in it and it's your primary res, then you don't get reassessed. So that's the new twist with Prop 19. And that's what the beauty of what a uh, a proper wow. trust setup will do. Wow. 
Um, do you know off the top, and if you don't, that's okay, but do you know off the top of your head what state has the best, like, uh, trust laws, I guess, if you will, to, like, if I wanted to say I need to retire here, just, in, or, you know what I'm saying? Well, California has got a wonderful setup for the California Trust, and, and uh, it's the states that have the best probate laws that's super cool with probate. Uh, California is horrible with probate court, but states like New York, and Texas are wonderful, even Louisiana are wonderful when it comes to probate. In other words, they're not in it for 18 months and 10%. Mm. They're in it for six weeks and 600 bucks. So you really don't need trust that much in those states. Mm. That's cool. But I mean, it's still probably worth having just because there's still probably disputes between family members. Like you get those families where it's like, dad left me everything. No, he left me everything. And then there's no trust that says, actually, I left neither of you. It's your, your my other half brother, your other half brother. They get the whole thing <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, Andres, you're bringing up a great, interesting point because we do a video with each of these trusts where we turn the camera on. We have mom and dad look into the camera and say, Susie and uh, John, listen, we're setting this up. Um, you guys are only just 14 right now and we're putting your grandmother in charge and don't you make her regret saying yes to being in charge. In other words, if when you're 16 and you're demanding a convertible Mustang, they're going to say no to you. You need to understand that if you contest that, you will be out of your inheritance. So we build these videos together where they're crying, they're saying goodbye to their kids and that's part of the wow. trust package. Wow. Okay, so that begs a natural question. We'll get back to the trust stuff in just a second, but as a tangent question really quick, I'm assuming your experience with selling books had to have been and is still serving you extremely well because you're basically leading people to the next emotional step. Can you can you talk about what, what aspects of that experience you use to this day? Man, to, to go out to Tuscumbia, Alabama in 1972, the home of Helen Keller, and to pick up a sample case there uh, and start knocking on doors for 13 and a half hours a day under the guidance of Steve Babbitt and Jim Calder um, was the most amazing thing because they showed me how to get the job done in 20 minutes. And to go for seven or eight or nine no's every third of the day so you can get that one or two yeses. So they really just built into me that a no would just bring you closer to a yes. And when it's going to happen, it's going to happen in 20 minutes and not two hours. So this is the stuff of what we do with the living trust. We can tell whether a person is either a green banana or a yellow one within a couple <laughs> minutes of a conversation. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so cool. Okay, we'll come back to your Southwestern experience in, in a moment because that all of that was super interesting. But we'll put a pin on that and, and go back to this trust stuff. So, okay, so we're, now we're getting – those are some of the basics, right? Get your trust so that way the inheritance – not only just to avoid probate, but to make sure the inheritance gets distributed the way you want it to be distributed and not the way that your kids' lawyers decide to – or your you know, spouse's in-laws or some weird person that claims that money or that inheritance. And even if you think you don't have a lot, you still haven't, there's still worth to what you've built because it's your life's worth. And so it's still worth doing it. Um, so let's get to some of the more advanced questions. So maybe, or maybe questions that um, people wouldn't think to ask. So let me just start with that one. 
what is the most common question that people don't ask you that they probably should or like what they should lead with when they first? Well, like uh, they never asked me about the next generation going to the children. And so uh, they never asked me what happens when it goes to my daughter, Suzanne, and then Suzanne dies. Um, what's going to happen with that money that I've bequested to my daughter? Is it going to go to her husband? Is it going to go to her kids? And this next generation thinking is what is usually the loss. So we build an ecosystem to say, now it's not just going to go to Suzanne, but to Zan Suzanne's trust. And it's not going to commingle with her wonderful husband and father of your grandchildren. It's going to go strictly to your daughter Suzanne's trust. And then at her demise, if she wants to give it all to her husband, then great. But if rather not, then it's going to flow to her children with the daddy as the trustee. So that there can't ever be a thing where Suzanne inherits a million bucks. And a year later, the husband decides he's not interested in marriage anymore and wants to claim half of Suzanne's inheritance because she unwittingly commingled it into community property. Whoa, drama. Okay, so um, let's, <laughs> you say that like you've seen this happen. Yeah. Quite a bit. And, I, and I'm embarrassed because I didn't know to ask the question in 92 when I was 40 years old and just getting started in this business after 10, 11 years in the brokerage business at uh, Merrill Lynch, I moved from that into this and I didn't know the questions to ask. And I got some pretty rough phone calls from the daughters saying, we're not blaming you, Jim, but uh, I got divorced last year and half of what I inherited got claimed by my brutal. Holy moly. Oh, no. I shouldn't laugh, but it's funny, you know? It, I mean, it's just it's so intense. Okay, hold on. So you, so that's the first thing that people should ask you. What other questions are people not asking you that you're like? Uh, should, I tell, should I tell my kids that they're going to be getting everything? Or how do I do the business? Um, should I leave it to the hard workers there at the business and give them equity in it or have it go to the kids? And so I just love unraveling businesses for the business owners and bless those darn workers who have slaved away for 22 years uh, making uh, little ceramic things for teeth and, uh, and saying, you should be giving your business to these workers, not to your children, and let the workers keep 60% of it, and then 40% of the profits will go to those kids, but 60 to the workers. So I always giving equity to those employees. So that's a big Interesting. thing. Why do you think that's better than just to the kids? Because the kids don't know how to run the business. I agree. I, I agree with you, but yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just think it's an interesting... I mean, because pe people want to go, oh, I built it from the ground up. It belongs to my family. It's like, yeah, but they're going to run into the ground. Right. Two years. Right. After you died. You died in 2023 and your business died in 2025. Right. <laughs> and it'll be bad. Dang. That's so true. Or at the very least, uh, uh, you know, like the, the, it makes sense because those people did it, did earn it and they help you build that business and you're done. So, you know, be a little generous. It's okay. Right. <laughs> That's so true. 
what what are what are the let's look at the business standpoints what are some of the more interesting uh scenarios that you've seen when people are like trying to divide a business or what to do with the business uh well your, the business uh you know is either going to get shut down because they didn't think uh you know to put it into the hands of the worker bees uh, or if it keeps on going they 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 didn't give those equity workers enough juice to keep their beak wet so we always love to see a 60-40 split, 60% going to the worker bees, uh, the employees who will then be vested with equity, and then 40% to the kids so the kids can enjoy something of the business because it's still going. So we, do, we just love all kinds of uh, ways for people out here in California. Most businesses are going at 2x of revenue. So if you have a revenue of 250000 a year, the value of the business should be selling for about 500,000 bucks. Mm. And so we always think of six or seven competitors, put all their names and phone numbers down inside the book and say, you need, if daddy dies uh, and you as the wife have this business, you need to call these six or seven competitors and say, we've got a Rolodex of 550 regular clients. And, uh, you know, we're getting bids like 400, 500,000. Are you interested? So we help that surviving spouse who has nothing to do with the darn business to market the business over to the competition. Interesting. So let's use me as an example for this. So make sure I'm getting you right. So, um, so we're a business, right? We're Ponytails Podcast LLC. We have ads, we have sponsors. We have, okay. Let's say it keeps going. I grow the revenue of the business to 100,000. So it's not worth, 200,000 in California in this particular right. scenario. Let's just say it's the same in Oregon because whatever. So 200,000, I die. My wife's like, I don't know anything about podcasting. I don't, I mean, I didn't, I didn't even sell books. I can't host this. Uh, and it should, and my husband w would always want it to go towards value towards the alumni, which it is true. So she goes and calls Southwestern or some other person who is in Southwestern. And she goes, hey, the businesses were $200,000. That's what it's producing in revenue. Uh, and then my trust then makes it so that she can make that transition smoothly on the behalf, you know, or, or because I wanted it to be so. And it's hands clean. Is that about right? Yeah. We, we always love to see a business owner throw in $250,000, $500,000 of term insurance for at least 10 years so that there is a share buyback, like a key man policy, where yeah. all the people surrounding you, Andres, they know what you're doing. And they know of some possible other people who could step into the AG shoes. And if you have a nice $500,000 death benefit, you can go ahead and make sure that that money is going to go to your wife um, and she is able to go ahead and sell the darn uh, shares or turn over all the interest of the LLC membership to the new proper uh, business owners. Interesting. So she'd make money from me dying because of I'm a key person in the, the key man policies are amazing. Right. Um, so, so I get that. So she gets that. And on top of that, she gets whatever the business is sold for if she sells it right wow look at that i'm writing everybody people should be writing this down right <laughs> so okay um uh, any any anything else that that 
as we're getting into the more advanced stuff, like anything else that I, that we should know that that yes, one about? of the reasons why people don't do this is they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed because they would then have to make a decision about who the guardians of their children are going to be, and if mom heard that it was the other mom, the other grandma who was named as the guardian, mm. it would be World War III in the house. So they don't even do anything. And that's why my favorite saying, I will act now, is about at least deciding for the benefit of those kids, you gotta name somebody. And it's generally one of the grandmas. And we think it's cool, frankly, not to tell. We just say, keep it a secret. Let it just between you and your husband. And then if the worst were to happen, then that particular grandma would be the guardian of the kids as number one, and maybe the other grandma, number two. And they can work out a split arrangement. But the point is, you're not compelled by law to tell them ahead of time and ruin every following Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> well, on top of that, too, it's going to be World War Three if you don't do it anyway. Because right. if you die and then that right. goes out and now it's in probate and it's right. grandma one versus grandma two in court. Right. That right in front of the kids that's right. the worst case scenario that's it so you might as well just do with it now and avoid that and, and then wow okay okay serious question that well no silly question that i am serious about because you know it's it, it, I, I need to know this for myself but this could lead to a more interesting uh, question after that if if i could i put in my trust things like that don't have to do with my estate so for example my brother and i have this bet where the first one that dies has to show up to the other's funeral, the winner or loser, however you want to look at it. The, the one who sell out, we have to show up to the funeral in like a cheerleader outfit or a grim reaper outfit or something like that. Can yeah. I put that in the trust where it's like, you can't, I will have a security guard at my, I want a security guard at my funeral and I want them to not let that man in unless he's wearing a grim reaper outfit. Can I yeah, put that? Of course you can. Yeah. Oh, that's enforceable. Oh, we, we love that. And we love always the cats and the dogs and the birds, sure. their names, their birthdays, who they go to. We love caring for the baseball card collections, the guns, the toys, the pianos, the guitars, the collections <laughs> of music. I mean, everything goes in there. Okay. Which is my, this is what I was hoping we were going to get there. So what is the most interesting thing that someone has put, whether it's an object or a situation that you see, or not the most, but like some of the ones that you recall that you're like, wow, that was a very yeah. interesting. A 130 pound tortoise we're putting into a trust this week. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and that, and that tortoise is going to live another 60 years. So you have to make so, a trust for like the next five generations. Yeah. Yeah, we, we love, you know, caring for those pets and making sure that that's taken care of. And That's so cool. Okay, so that's one. Anything else that, that you've seen that you're like, wow, I cannot believe that this got left or like they put this in the trust, but cool. We had a Playboy collection discovered two years ago. He thought that it'd be worth 40000 ended up selling for $100,000, a pristine collection from beginning to end, every Playboy magazine. And it was sold for like 110000 to somebody. And they were insisting on probate for it. But because it was in a trust, there was no probate needed. And so the, the widow was able to sell it, or the, the children were. That is outrageous. Yeah. Your job, man. That's Is that another similarity to the book field where it's like just the, the book field and your job? 
you you have to get into the intimate details of people's lives. In our case, it was we went into their homes when they were not expecting us. In your case, it's you're finding out what people's like most important things in their life are because that means that somebody went in to a lawyer and said, "Hey, I have a stack of every single edition of every Playboy that's come out in pristine condition. It's gonna be worth something someday. I need this to go in my truck." Like that was a, another lawyer's like yeah unbelievable oh my gosh oh my gosh that is so funny okay last any other ones that we definitely need to make this this taping of this episode or is that Mm, yeah just the amazing you know camaros and uh all the gtos that are out there and wherever they are i mean those really are getting more valuable all the time so we never forget you know those cars what's the most like valuable thing like the playboy magazine that magazines are that's pretty impressive is there anything else that you that has shocked you how much value they have yeah i was amazed at a wine collection going for four hundred thousand dollars i mean you know i'm just blown away by how people collect wine wow it's a big what's the strangest collectible item that you think you've seen oh boy i i guess when it comes to um collectibles it would be hmm, dolls, porcelain dolls, kind of creepy. But uh, we've been in homes where, I mean, those dolls came alive to these people and they would have, you know, interactive relationships with these 19 or 20 dolls around the room. So a little scary moments. Jim, can I tell you something? This is not what I thought this episode was going to go. I mean, I, I mean, I wanted, I, I saw trust and I was like, okay, it's, we're probably just going to have more conversation about estate planning, which technically we are, but this is not what I thought was going to be said. And this is hilarious. And well, you know, what's cool, what you're bringing up, Andres, none of this would happen if I didn't have my practice built on going to the client's home to do their trust. Because as a Southwestern bookman, I mean, that's where I was most comfortable and where the rest of the attorney community, you know, uh, community would never think of driving to a little town and going to a little house and going past the driveway and going through the front door. I mean, they'd be far too above all of that pedestrian life. We made our living because farmers, state farm and all state agents heard that we as paralegals for a reasonable price were willing to go to their little old ladies homes and get it all done. And it's only there at the kitchen table do real things happen. That is hilarious. And on that note, let me ask this question because I, I was curious. You said you, you mentioned your son before we recorded. We were talking about your son and he's in the business. So can you talk a little bit more about what it's like to try to, to essentially have a trust for handing over your business and, and kind of like moving it forward? You're you're mentioning that. Well, the, the capacity to take a bunch of no's in this business and to work really hard from morning to sundown, I mean, that's something that if you're 19 years old and, and you're, you're being told to do that and you've got to do that for 13 weeks in the summer, um, you're going to learn some really great habits. And boy, oh boy, my son is now, uh, you know, he was born in 90. And so to learn about that kind of discipline where no matter how hungry you are, no matter how tired you are, you push yourself to the end to reach that third of a day's goal. That's something that if you haven't learned selling books door to door or some other thing when you're 18, 19 or 20, it's real hard to learn, uh, you know, after that. So I got to say that 
it's uh, it's really something to that to now so be fun. trying to teach my son those things. That's so fun. And and do you tell him your stories of your time selling books? Do you like what does he think of you? Uh, like, oh, he just shakes his head and you know just doesn't quite get it the way a bookman would get it. We just built it, and even other door-to-door -door people don't quite get it the same way. Like I've I've met other door-to-door -door people, and it it's like, it's kind of like the difference between uh, English to Portuguese. Like you can still catch it, you can still right. understand, but it's not the same thing no. as someone else that just totally speaks Spanish. Yeah, unless Spencer Hayes and Jerry Heffel and Alan Clements and Fred Prevost and all those kinds of personalities were involved in the teaching of you and guiding you, the Jim Calders, the Steve Babbitts, the Dave Causers, the Dan Moores. These are essential people who are just brilliant motivators and they care for you and they're smarter than you and they work harder than you. And so you, you got to respect them. They're all, you know, black belts in the world of motivation. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. So wonderful. Um, uh, last last couple of questions about the, the this this is so fun. Thank you for sharing all this. By the way, I, I really appreciate your insight here. Um, to get a little bit maybe even deeper and and more advanced in in the world that you live in, um, what what has been the biggest change maybe politically or or over the course of the last three decades that you've been in this industry that that you've noticed uh, from a legal standpoint has been the, the hardest shift that people wouldn't like understand or, or be surprised by or, or has it been stayed pretty constant? over the last 30 years? Well, no, I mean, there used to be nine to nothing Supreme Court rulings back 30 years ago. That's never going to happen again. And so the, you know, the partisanship has just, just risen up in the last 30 years like I never knew it before. And there's no more nine to no's. And, uh, you know, I think it's a sign of health when there's an issue that is right um, and nine people stand up and say, this is the way that we should vote, no matter whether we're red or, or blue. And then do you, do you notice that like come into play when it comes to how people set up their trust and how, and how people approach? Cause, cause when it comes, people like to confuse legal stuff with the politics stuff and it's not always the same, there's some overlap, sure, but that's the case in anything. But like, do you notice that, uh, the, the way that the laws and things have changed or the way technology has brought up? the world like for example if i own a instagram account and it makes me a certain amount of cash and then i want to put that in a trust that's something that 20 years ago that sentence would make zero sense to anybody living or dead right. you know so like have you noticed like having to adapt to a changing world whether it's politically technologically culturally that that's kind of changed your job over the last few years i couldn't be doing my job without windows and it was in 92 when I first got familiar with a DOS program and ever since then, but without DOS and without Windows and without Microsoft Word, I would not be in this business, but it's leveled the playing field where dummies like me, who are simply legal document assistants and paralegals, not the elegant attorneys that are out there who have studied and worked hard and are really smart. I simply know how to write and I know how to spell, and I know what paragraphs look like. And so I'm able to hear from a DIY market where a client says, this is what I want, and I can put it into words. And thanks God to cut and paste and to Word and Microsoft, I'm able now to be in a level playing field 
And now with AI, it's even yeah. more so where almost anybody can do their own powers of attorney and their own trusts. That's super interesting. So how do you think that that'll affect a business like yours where it's like, you know, well, it always will need a human being strumming their strings because pushing yourself into the pool of decision is hard. But when you have a little nudge in life, uh, guiding you and removing the friction, uh, you're always going to need a, a human being to add to the technology and to say, yes, you lent Annette a hundred thousand dollars nine years ago and all the other three kids know that annette got that hundred thousand so let's unpack that now and in the distribution let's reduce annette's share by that hundred thousand i always smell it out the annette's with the hundred thousand and i unravel what otherwise would be a real problem for the other siblings who know that annette did get that hundred thousand never paid a nickel back on it so I'm able to sniff that out and AI is not able to do smell yet. Essentially, here's what you're saying. I think here's what you're saying. A AI can write the best sales talk of all time, but somebody's got to knock on the door. Somebody's right. going to sit down with the mom and dad and the kid, tell them how and why they're going to use this product and why it makes sense, understand their emotional need, get them to genuinely trust you, not like for the trick of the sale, but to genuinely build a connection of trust. So that now you're an advisor instead of a salesperson and right. AI cannot and will not ever be able to do that because you're in the sales, you're still in sales, right? It's pure sales. It's sales. And, but, and when, and to be clear, because there might be people listening who didn't sell books, but you know what I mean? And I know yeah. what you mean, but the, what we mean is the type of sales that we learned, which is, it's not about convincing people. It's not about trying to change someone's mind. It's about emotionally connecting with someone to the point where they trust you and then you and trust your expertise, which is solid, to guide them in their best interest. Right. And they know that that's what you're doing. And you know yes. that that's what you're doing, and everybody's on board. That's right. Sale. Not like, hey, you should sign here because it's good for you. Right. Phenomenal stuff. That is amazing. And like you said, just going into people's houses and meeting, meeting them where they are, not just physically but mentally, that's huge. Being comfortable with having a stranger. Oh, so cool, man. So awesome, Jim. This is really sweet. Um, last last question I wanted to ask you with this is how why did you decide to get you were in Merrill Lynch and you jump into this? Can you get a little bit more detailed on as to how and why you made the decision to like do this? How how did you even get started in this? Yeah, I it was from the book business and then uh after that in seventy seven I started going out and doing some stuff with Pitney Bowes and selling postage meters in Chicago and then the group of guys that I had sold books with came out to San Diego in 77, 78, 39 and said, hey, we're into estate planning. Come out and join us and uh, you'll be enjoying the world of estate planning. So I did that and I found it a, a field at Merrill Lynch filled with a conflict of interest because mine was a commission based biz where I knew that I wasn't going to get paid unless I convinced a client to go ahead and sell that hundred shares. Uh, that had gone up 20, 30, 40%. So uh, I found the conflict after 10 years of doing that too much to do. And so my sister and attorney, she says, well, California allows you legally as a paralegal to serve the DIY market. And so use your sales skills, not just in that conflicted biz, but into you know something that you use your sales force and you'll begin them to, to so appreciate the fact that they did get you know motivated 
to finally get this piece of business done in their life. Amazing. And so you started doing that. Did you figure out how to do the the, the billing and like how does that, how does that stuff even work? Like how do you even pay? Like how do you get? I mean, maybe the, the, there's a, a upfront fee, and that covers what we did. I started doing this when it was three hundred nine dollars a trust, and uh, yeah, I would take that portion of it and uh, pay the bills that way back in ninety two, and now it's about twice that fee for an individual to do their trust, or four times that number if it's a couple. So it's like 1200 bucks for a couple, 600 for a, a single person. And yeah, that's how it works. Now, when they die, then the kids say, well, there's six of us and we've got one house and nobody wants to buy anybody out. So we got to sell the house. So thank God my daughter, Martina, she's one of the top realtors in the city of San Diego. And so I always recommend Martina to represent the trustee in the sale of the house. Phenomenal. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. And you guys have been doing that for 31 years, just helping yeah. people out. So yeah. cool. Wow. What are you, what are you, what's the next like five, 10 years look like for you? Or what's the North star here? Just being grandpa and golfing better so I can learn how to make a six foot putt. That's huge. Honestly, mm -hmm. that's a good measurable goal. <laughs> mm -hmm. awesome. <laughs> oh man thanks so much for sharing all this jim um let's jump into some southwestern stuff uh, if, if you don't mind i just kind of want to hear about how it went for so 1972 uh i think that ties you for the second first second furthest back uh first summer because we had jim potts on here he sold in 1968 i think it was his first summer yeah. uh, and then dan moore was right around he was 74 74 yep so that's fun. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about you're at Loyola. How the yeah? What I was a theater major at Loyola. Way too busy doing two or three shows and classes, and they leave notes. Steve Babbitt would, you know, time after time at talk at the Epsilon House, and I would hardly ever be there except from midnight until six in the morning. And finally, I, you know, he caught up with me at the uh, the Commons over there where we ate at Loyola in Chicago. And uh, I thought about the railroad ties that I had been fixing the summer before, didn't want to fix any more rail ties in Peoria, Illinois. And my father says, you're not going to earn anything from this stupid business of commission sales, or, or even though he was a salesman himself, but he didn't have much hope for me. So um, that challenge, he threw the gauntlet down. He's a father, you know, of nine kids. I'm one of them. And and he just knew what would get me. And it got me to prove that, you know, he was wrong. Unfortunately, I had Jim Calder and Steve Babbitt and those people putting me into the home of Helen Keller there in uh, Tuscumbia, Alabama, and knocking on those doors. And lo and behold, after 30 uh, no's, I ended up with six or seven or eight yeses. And uh, I you know, kept doing that for five summers. Hold on, hold on. Let me just back up to a couple of things you said there. One, your dad, a salesman, says you're going to be terrible at this. Mm -hmm. And you said, just you watch. Did right. you have a time in the summer where you were like almost maybe considered going home or something? And then you went, no, 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 father. And then You know, I, I, I tell you what, I, I got to a Mr. Boston's house in my seventh week and um, he just gave me a big hard no. And I got on the phone whimpering to Jim Calder and um, 
And Jim turned me around there in I think week seven of my first summer and said, you need just to understand that uh, even though the cops have asked you not to be, you know, knocking on the doors here, um, you need to put your back uh, to the sign on the outskirts of town and start going to every single house, you know, and I only had a bike. So I would just ride my bike from house to house and they're pretty far apart there in Alabama. But it was it was Jim who, you know, got me on the Mr. Boston's house. I'll never forget that. He turned me around after about a he laughing at me for about 20 minutes. You know, and he took me from tight as a drum to laughing again and feeling healthy, happy and terrific. And so that was as close as I got. I just needed that one nice phone call from JC. What would your life have been if you, you know, decided not to call him and said, you know, what, I'm done. Yeah, I'm just uh, really in need of the kind of discipline that uh, that the Southwestern thing uh, brings to a person. I, I've met people who are real smart and real disciplined on their own, and I am neither. So I really appreciate the externals of uh, what it takes to measure yourself day by day, not for activity, but for results. Wow, that is so cool. Okay, so, so that's one question I had. Okay, we just kind of have briefly talked about this, but Helen Keller's house? Like you so you lived in her house? No, no. This was the home, Tuscumbia was, where the miracle worker was all done. And this is where, yeah, my God, um, that is it. And so I did not live in that house. I lived in a house nearby that. And this was a, this was a, yeah, a beautiful home, a wealthy family, but it was a different home that I was living in, but this was Tuscumbia, Alabama. And boy, oh boy, every Friday night they would put on in the summer, The Miracle Worker and that movie with uh, Bancroft. Yeah. And I mean, that really was a good depiction. They recreated it well. I've not seen these pictures before, but wow, is that cool? The birthplace of Helen Keller. Look at that. Yeah. And so there I was for the summer and so... uh, knocking on those doors. Wow. And that's right across the river from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And that was in 72. I was knocking on doors. Summer of 71, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards cut sticky fingers in Muscle Shoals at the uh, studios there, the famous Muscle Shoals sound stage and so i got to hear those stories about what it was like when jagger and uh and richards and the whole of rolling stones were there the summer before but it was an amazing time in to, in that part of alabama i mean 1972 was like their i mean they're still in their prime arguably but they, that was like when it was the rage yeah and it's so cool i mean wild horses was written and composed and and recorded there and uh, it's just an amazing thing to be that close to it and then just to be riding across that bike uh that 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 bridge every night on the bicycle and to uh have alabamans say when i got off the bridge put your bike in our truck and we'll drive you home and this is how Alabamans were in 72. I mean, they would just know that you had a long way to go uh, to, to get back to Tuscumbia from Muscle Shoals. And so I would have more than one time uh, guys pull over with their truck. I'd put the bike 
in the in the flatbed in the back, and then they drive me back up six miles to uh, to Tuscumbia. How awesome! So back when you think back of that first summer, do you recall like your first maybe like your first door, your first customer, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I do remember the first door knocking on the door and how scared I was. And Ellen Clements said in sales school, just say, um, uh, I'm here to do practice. And so my first door, I says, can I please practice? I, I'm trying to do this job. And this lady says, yeah, I am not interested in any books, but if you want to practice on me, go ahead. So she let me in the door, sit down on the couch, do my sales pitch. And I didn't sell it. She kept her word. She didn't buy. But boy, she was nice enough to let me practice. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that first store. Is there anything scarier? <laughs> Nothing scarier. I mean, absolutely. I, I have midnight. I have um, nightmares to this day that it's Sunday night and I'm going back out to the book field in the it's, morning on Monday. You got the bookmares. Yeah. You, yeah. Years later. Yeah. That's so crazy. Okay, so how did you decide you wanted to come back and do this again? Well, I didn't want to, but then my sister Celeste, she wanted to earn some money, the kind of money I just earned. And so I could not come out if she wanted to go out and sell books. So she came out the next summer. And, you know, once you're responsible for a sibling out there and her friends yeah. and some of the other friends you recruited, that's how, you know, they get you is that you become not just self-centered but other centered with management and and that's why it's such an elegant business yeah so oh sorry i skipped one question i want to talk about your sister in just a second because i recruited my brother the next so his my second summer was his first summer and i brought him out straight out of high school which is really fun um, wow but what one thing i forgot to ask is you made so you did well the summer it sounds like you made some money what did your dad say when you came home Oh, he was so proud of me. You know, he just smoked that cigar at the awards dinner and was just a really proud guy. It was the first time that I really felt like, you know, I really made him proud because I was not the basketball star he was or the track star he was. And, uh, you know, just didn't do a lot of the stuff that he dreamed his first son would do. But boy, oh boy, went out and kicked butt on the book field. Uh, he liked that, and he knew that uh, I was going to be okay, even if he wasn't around. And you were. I mean, that talking about like an experience that can change your life. I think I've had this conversation with a couple people on the show, but Shane Hertig is a buddy of mine that I sold with, and he he's the one I first ever heard say this, which is, you know, if everything goes south, businesses fail, or my I get fired, spouse leaves me, whatever. If I just pick up a book bag. And go knock on some doors anywhere in this country i'm gonna be just fine and i go that's so true like if you really needed to right or even if you didn't sell books you could you, you could you could you could right you could go sell something to somebody exactly you can go sell something which is i mean that's amazing what a skill that we were given you know yeah that we were taught incredible 168 year legacy get it you know you say what you want some people don't have good feelings after they leave southwestern and i get that we've had them on the show but at the end of the day nobody's mad about their student manager recruiting them to come sell books that's mm -hmm. the truth uh, how did you how did your sister do did you did she beat you did you, did you no no you? she she didn't beat me but i that's did right. bring out my fiance a couple years later and she was the number one girl uh in the darn company uh just 
unbelievable. It was early days when they were allowing women to start selling. And in 75, uh, Barbara knocked on doors and she was, you know, 500 miles away from where I was in the wisdom of management. And, um, and she did great in Wichita and was number one in the company for um, all women, not just first year women. And, uh, and, but we ended up not getting married because on the morning of the wedding, she decided she didn't think it was the right thing to do. So Whoa. yeah, it was rough. I thank God uh, he, he brought along my wife, Carol. And now, you know, we have three kids and four grands and that was, but that was 10 years later, but it was a rough one to go through. Did you have bookmen at the wedding? Well, yeah. I mean, we had everybody there at the wedding being told by Dave Curry, my best man, uh, say, saying, I'm sorry, there's not going to be a wedding here today, but we are going to have a reception. So go across the street. Oh, man. And then one of your book friends just went up to you and said, who's next or something? Like, yeah. Shake it off. Right. <laughs> I'm happy, healthy, terrific, right, Jim? That's brutal. Yeah. Wow. No, no, no number of summers can prepare you for that. I'm no. sorry to hear that. that was, but hey, so many grandkids so fun right you get to tell these stories to them this is so, it's so cool that's amazing. no one would listen to these stories except the book man this is i mean you know i i, I yeah I, you're probably right you're probably right we, i'm trying my best I, we do have a following of people who did not sell books who who are listeners regular listeners to the show not i don't know if every episode but they do tune in to just kind of catch stuff that they're interested in and i, I always wonder what they think because when you, I'll, I'll tell you this story. You Do you remember a guy named Alan Wood? He would have sold right around your time. I can't say I do. Okay. Yeah, he would have been, he sold in the 70s. Uh, he lives in Newport, Oregon, or near Newport, Oregon. And the reason I'm telling you about him is because my wife is from Newport, Oregon. So I'm visiting for the first time my wife's parents, my now wife's parents. This is like, we're still dating. And I'm some kid from Nebraska who's going through this little small podunk town, New, Newport Beach, you know, in, in Oregon. And I'm meeting her mom and her dad, and they have two family, their family friends over. And it's Alan Wood and his, and his spouse. And I don't know that he sold books. So we start talking, you know, hey, hi, nice to meet you, sir. You know, and I know from my experience how to talk to someone's parents. <laughs> so just, you know, just doing the thing. And at one point, Alan stops and says, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. Did you, have you always been able to connect with people like this? Like, I don't know. How, how do you, where did you get your communication skills from? Like, have you always had this or like, did you learn this somewhere? And I said, actually, yeah, I learned. Uh, and I, I did this thing where I sold books door to door with a company called Southwestern and I learned how to communicate with people. And he goes, I sold books. And I go, no way. <laughs> so, you know, we connect. We have this kind of conversation that we're having right now for a good 20, 30 minutes. Heard that my now father-in-law is just like what the heck is happening <laughs> he has no idea the that's great connection that we made just on the fact that we sold books and, he's and so that was your wife's father yeah my wife's father and her, so her his name is rob and rob's friend alan wood who's the book guy okay. was just visiting i get it he just happened to be there that night when i when i like they were just crazy company over and i just happened to be like run it bumping him so at one point when we kind of like figured out like the whole connection, we start going into the execs doing bookman stuff. And he stops and he goes, Rob, and he just very seriously looks at me and goes, Rob, this is a man's man. 
This man knows commitment. This man knows rejection. This man knows God. This man, like, he just starts going through, like, what a bookman is, you know? You can't, I couldn't have paid him to say something like that. Right. <laughs> That's just the endorsement. That's great. <laughs> so, that was like, wonderful. But all that to say, Rob was interested. Like, now he tells me, you know, he goes, you know, it's so weird that you guys did that. And it's interesting to me. So he's like, he'll tune in and listen to some episodes sometimes. If you're listening, Rob, hello. But it, it, it's, it's just, I always wonder what it's like for people. Like, you know, th- did Carol sell books? Your wife sell books? No, no. Um, none of the kids, my wife didn't sell books. What, are they, what does she say Like when you tell her about your experience? like does she? Yeah, she just figures it's part of my theatrical self. But I think that she understands deeper what uh what what it has done for me in terms of my work ethic she uh you know really appreciates the uh, early mornings and the late nights and um the detachment i have to the need for food on a regular basis <laughs> yeah my i had a friend a book friend uh she's visiting portland she she was here last time for dinner and she was talking to my wife and my wife used like southwestern terms so she was like oh yeah yeah the hq or you know uh uh pc or whatever you know <laughs> and my book friend she was a she's like oh she's got the lingo down like she she's, i was like yeah she gets it <laughs> it's so <laughs> super fun oh man um okay so what happened how did the rest of the of your career go i mean you said it to say five summers how did you know five summers was the right right call or did you want to say oh that? i was really burned out after the loss of barbara in 75 76 i was just barely making it you know, in 76 oh. emotionally and tried to recruit 76, 77 and tried to bring a team out in 77. But just by June of uh, 77, I realized I had pretty well been exhausted. So Dave Dean, uh, one of the sales managers came to me and said, listen, a guy named Bob Davenport from Taylor University in Indiana has a wandering wheels program. And on June 26th, there's, they're gonna be taken off from Portland Maine and biking like they do every summer to Portland, Oregon. So get yourself on a flight, which I did that night, was on a bike a seat in the uh, you know Atlantic Ocean in, in Portland, Maine, and rode myself cross country to Portland, Oregon after uh, 34 days. And so that was my way of separating out from my uh, my heartbreak and you know the uh, the whole deal with me being over the book business. Oh my gosh. Your life is bananas, man. Okay. Okay. So first of all, that is a long trek. What was your favorite part of the road trip? I got to know. It was Iowa. Iowa was the most amazing state. Northern Iowa has these rolling hills of corn and we were going through it in july uh and and it was like unbelievable you know spires of of tassels and it was a magic quiet ride through the hills of northern iowa and we just all at the end said iowa iowa just blew our minds dang it i was hoping you were gonna say nebraska i'm from nebraska (laughs) yeah well it's probably part of that as we got rolling but that that magic midwest in the summertime when you're on a bike i mean it is something else and then of course the crescendo is du bois 
Wyoming and Jackson Hole. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, that we, I obviously from Nebraska, my wife's from here. So I, when we were still dating, I'd drive out to here sometimes. And man, that's a, I mean, the Rockies are just in the entrance into Portland. You probably came on through the gorge when you were coming into Portland. That whole, right. It's insane. It's beautiful. It's insane. Yeah. It's, I mean, unlike anything, I mean, I'm from Colombia and we have some beautiful landscapes there too, but I have some stuff I've seen here. I'm like, this is nuts. Some really mm-hmm. pretty parts in this area. That's awesome. So you, and you're like, I'm done. And you get to Portland, Oregon. And then what happened? How did you and then I was down to the Shakespeare festival in Ashland. And then after that, yeah. uh, down to uh, California to see some friends who were living out here, uh, in 77. And then, uh, hitchhiked back to Chicago and That's yeah. Cool. And then you got into Merrill Lynch. What did you do right after books? Like, what was the next? Was that? that and then it was next? just into selling real estate with my dad, uh, you know, in 77 through 80, and then getting into Pitney Bowes. And then that phone call from Ralph Holowinski and Vaughn Woods saying, come out here to San Diego on June 15th, 1980. And I went out there, you know, with a dollar in my pocket, and those guys paid the flight. And I had just had my VW towed. And uh, that was it. So that was the beginning of my life out here, you know, in estate planning in June of 80, 43 years ago. Amazing. Now we've come full circle. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. Okay. So here we go. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. And um, this is kind of bring up some and jog some memory of kind of like some of the uh, stories that you might be thinking of or that you might not be thinking of. And Mm -hmm. then we can go into some ponytail so you can tell some of your favorite stories. And that'll, that'll be it. Is that all right? Good. Okay, so here we go. So first off, of your five summers, what was your favorite territory, like favorite state and or like town that you sold in? Gosh, it would have to be Millington and Western uh, Tennessee, Ripley, Tennessee, the home of the greatest tomatoes in uh, the world. That and maybe better Galveston, uh, Texas. That's the summer of 74. Uh, I was in President's Club every week in 74 and it was taking that darn boat uh and 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 riding it across to uh, bolivar from galveston and and doing you know running 31 students out there and really motivated to do that so i must really say galveston texas 74 was the most ultimate and best of my summers pc every every week is every week time was a big deal i mean yeah now people like the units got inflated and the, you know people keep breaking records and barriers but in the 70s to be hitting pc weekly was you were elite that's pretty solid wow and you must have been making pretty good banks so your dad must have been super proud of you he was like yeah. you go jimmy <laughs> yeah making more than he did that's <laughs> wild mm-hmm. that that must have been an interesting day when you came home you had your check in three months yeah was, more yeah. than that's yearly. My mother said, you know, with your father, it's chicken and feathers, but boy, to have chicken the whole time like this with all this money really makes, you know, bill pain because she, my mother would still write the checks and allow me just to recruit while I was uh, out, you know, running the yeah. business recruiting. Wow. So cool. Okay. Um, what was your favorite uh, uh, HQ that you lived in when you were like, like, did you have like an HQ that you had that was, was it probably also Gavelson or? You know, that HQ had some amazing guys in Millington, Tennessee, right near Memphis. And uh, that HQ uh, had uh, 
uh, some guys that were just amazing, that were motivated and uh, constantly talking about what, what the real mark of a man, mark of a woman is, you know, when the mast falls down the boat and you rig up uh, some kind of sail and keep on sailing, you know, when everything goes wrong. And I love the sailing imagery, um, you know, to keep on sailing, to keep on moving. And that headquarters was uh, filled with guys who, who just loved when bad stuff would happen and, you know, how you'd laugh at it as the shoelaces break each day. Oh, gotta love that. I love it. Uh, what was your favorite uh, breakfast spot? The favorite breakfast, golly bum. You know, I guess it would have to be there in Galveston, Texas. They had some amazing breakfast spots and um, yeah, uh, we, we, we would just have cereal most of the time, but there'd be some times when you'd catch some pancakes there, right there at Stewart Beach. Mm, some of those, just, you know, what those mom and pop places that you just, mm -hmm. I always just go back to them in small towns. It's just as you're driving through something to whatever. And you see like one of those mom and pop shops, you go, man, this would be a good Buckfield breakfast spot. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. And then last one is what was your favorite follow day? Whether someone that you followed or someone was following you and you just recall that was a good. There was a Harvard guy named George Varghese who I just saw at the reunion back a couple of weeks ago in Nashville. About 700 guys got together for that big reunion. It was an yeah, amazing time. Yes. And yeah. so you know it. Yeah. And I'm sorry I didn't know you then. No, it's okay. Uh, uh, but, but that Friday night and all that fun time in the parking lot and then Saturday night at the Omni, yeah. just amazing two nights, wasn't it? Yeah, so fun. And like and, it, the, the music was great, just catching up with people. There's I didn't even know some of the people that were there that I found out were there later that I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't get the people who were on the show who I didn't even know were at the reunion. Yeah. And later on, I found out. So that was great, you know, and, and George, he came over and followed me and, you know, to have a little B student from Loyola, Chicago, uh, with, with the guy from Harvard following me is really something. So he came up to me at the reunion and gave me another big hug and thanks. And it was really a neat yeah. memory of, uh, for context back then, Harvard was the big school, or one of the big schools where like people yeah. like Dan was from there. They have big yes. group. Jim Calder had a huge group from Harvard. So yes. You're, you're talking, that's like the equivalent of like you know, the, one of the Estonian people come and right. follow you because you're crushing it and you're a B. Right. That's pretty solid. Amazing. Um, all right. So we can move on to some ponytails. So uh, hopefully that jogs some memories for you. But if, if you have like one or two of your favorite stories that you that you've you know carried with you all this time or the one that you tell people or maybe some that you remember from, you know, talking to some of the book guys that you just saw a couple of weeks ago. But uh, or, just, you know, if you can't think of anything, sometimes what people decide to do instead is. Uh, just some closing thoughts on what this experience was like for you, what it still means to you, uh, uh, you know, what some of the biggest things that you still carry with you in, in your life and in your, you know, whether that be business or personal, um, but take well, away, whatever you want to share. Well, me and Kristen Miller, uh, we were recruiting students over there in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the recruiting part during the school years, a uh, part of the book business. And I'll uh, never forget, you know, when we were talking with these guys and getting them to imagine what it was like to uh, go ahead and be out there uh, in, uh, in Galveston and have the breeze blowing through the palm trees. And we asked, you know, what is it you suppose you might 
in hail when you're out there uh, in the summertime and some guy just, you know, chirped up coconuts. It really got me laughing a lot. And I must say that uh, uh, I've had some great funny times recruiting with people like Christian Miller. But on the book field, it was always Corey Moe. And whenever he and I would work together, he's one of the great uh, kids from University of Illinois. And we had so much laughter going on, uh, especially when we'd be out, you know, selling uh, in the field. And, uh, you know, you, you just, your eyes would catch each other and you start laughing and you can't stop laughing. It's pretty dangerous stuff out there in the book field when you start going nuts laughing. So I've had some, you know, funny, great times, but you know, the, the I will act now thing is so important because when you're trying to figure out what to do, just to do anything, just put one foot in front of the other, uh, in life for these last 50 years, when things are down, when things aren't going right, just to do something is better than stewing or doing nothing. So I, I love that as the key Augmandino mentioned. And by the way, when I was uh, in between summers, uh, one of the publishing houses right there on the north side of Chicago was the home and the office of Augmandino. And for me yeah. to walk into his office and to, and to see his name on the desk, and to talk with him and tell him about my summers at Southwestern, of course, you know, he'd heard it all before, but it was just so great to tell him and thank him personally. You met Og? Yeah, I met Og. Amazing. So we had Dave Blanchard. I'll have to just put you in touch so you can just talk to Dave. Dave Blanchard is now the current CEO of the Og Mendino Leadership Institute and him and Betty Mendino, his Og's wife. Uh, so Og passed. Betty got, they probably must have had a really solid estate or a trust yeah because she kept the business and kept it going and then eventually turned into like coaching and motivational coaching and stuff and then she met dave and now dave is the ceo and majority shareholder of the company and he was on our show uh, and we cool. had a podcast yeah and and we we're working with him to try to um they're doing like a have you seen the chosen yeah yeah angel studios produces the chosen and they've picked up uh, the Augmentino's Greatest Salesman in the World book. And Great. turned it into a TV show. Wonderful. So he was on here telling us about that, and he, he was trying to tap into the alumni community to try to raise money for the for the project because to buy ownership, even if it's just a small percentage of ownership in the project as it grows and evolves. And so they're doing that right now, and it's so fun. And we're working on maybe starting them a podcast where um, I had to get to host and talk about Aug principles and stuff. So it, there's a lot of really cool stuff that we're working on with them specifically. So it's funny that you mentioned that because – yeah, Dave's a cool connection. So, yeah, fun. Um, well, Jim, this has been a pleasure. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom. Um, let me let me just put this last thing: is if people are in California and they want to get a hold of you, um, how what would be the best way to, for them to reach? Is it is that your Instagram handle, or what, how can they like reach out to you for maybe? Uh, I I love a text to six one nine. 405 3121. Is that okay? That's fine. Uh, I, I love text messages 619 405 3121. That's a great one. Or email james at home hyphen trust.com. It's a great email. Or 309 Jimmy on Instagram. That's and um, our website is uh, home hyphen trust.com on the website. So okay. my son Marco owns it and runs it. I'm just golfing and being a grandpa these days. Amazing. And then uh, if they have questions, they can ask you then, or you can, do you have people in other states that you can refer them to that maybe 
or something yeah. like that, or or any or or just kind of maybe pointers that you can give out. Is that something that that could work? Yeah, and we're always open for a Sunday meeting out here. So if any managers are looking for a Sunday meeting, we're a great site for it. Amazing. Um. All right. This is awesome. Thank you so much, guys. My name is Andres Gamboa. Um, this has been the Ponytails Podcast. We've been on with uh, Jay Mariani. Thank you so much, Jim. I, I hope you had a blast. Great. Thank you, AG. Bye, guys.